Hey everybody, it's Matt Michaels here with Sin City Steve and DJ Impact on the Vegas Bad Boys of Podcasting. You know, in 2020, during the coronavirus pandemic, a movement started online in the profession, in professional wrestling community under the hashtag speaking out. Now, this movement included behaviors that paralleled those of the Me Too movement and included behaviors such as harassment, bullying, sexual, sexual misconduct, rape, inappropriate advances, and physical violence. Some of the people who were named included Matt Riddle, Velveteen Dream, Austin Theory, Darby Allen, Jim Cornette, Marty Screw, uh, Sammy Guevara, Will Ospreay, Dave Christ, Jody Ryan, and our guest tonight, Michael Elgin. Now, Michael reached out to us because he felt it was time to tell his story. The story he will tell over the next three episodes are his words and do not reflect our opinions here at the Vegas Bad Boys podcast thing. The reason we agreed to allow Michael the time to tell the story is because none of us with the Vegas Bad Boys had any knowledge of what happened between Michael and his accusers. The only knowledge that we had was what we read on various wrestling news sites stating Michael had been named during the speaking out movement and was released by Impact Wrestling. In fairness to anyone who did speak out against Michael, we extend an open invitation for you to tell your story on the Vegas Bad Boys podcasting in the future. And with that said, we welcome we welcome Michael Elgin. Michael, how you doing, man? Uh, you know, recently uh, I've been doing all right. I've decided to speak up, like you said, and I appreciate the platform. Um, unfortunately, in situations like this, and, and I dealt with it, before the speaking out movement, one accusations get twisted. Um, what I mean by that is somebody will say something. And then by the time you hear about it, I hear about it. Even if it's about you, a uh, company hears about it. It's twisted from the original thing that's being said. And then not only that, unfortunately with some of these movements, and I know that people will give me shit about this, but in any decent movement that is just, and, and people should, follow along and people who are doing wrong should pay. There is an outlier of people that will unfortunately take advantage of those situations. And we've seen it in any, in every movement. Um, wasn't, I forget the guy's name, but somebody lied about getting beat up during the Trump presidency. Right. And then uh, that actor lied about getting beat up like in all these movements, unfortunately there's some people that will use them to gain advantage. Now, not in any way am I saying I'm perfect, not in any way am I saying that, uh, how do I word this right? Basically, it breaks down. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I have my faults. I've definitely, you know, made mistakes in my life, but the drastic things that have been said are 100% false. And we're uh, going to get into that over the next uh, three episodes, like I said. But let's start and just kind of getting a little background here. Um, you grew up in Canada. What was it like for you growing up in Canada? How were your uh, parents with you? And, and what was it generally like for you as a kid um, when you, you know, were going to school? Uh, did you play any sports? Did you have friends? What, were, what was it like for you day to day? Yeah, uh, you know, I was big into baseball, uh, lacrosse and basketball. Uh, and of course, wrestling. But my amateur wrestling days didn't start till I was in the seventh grade because none of my schools had it. And uh, 
a lot of sports in Canada aren't as big as they are in the States, especially within the schooling system. I mean, I think there was like two schools in my district that had a football team. Um, lacrosse, we didn't even get until I was in high school, things like that. But growing up, man, wrestling was really all it was for me. I was kind of the wrestling kid and I had a lot of friends and they became wrestling fans too. And I don't know if they were wrestling fans before we became friends. Um, but man, that was, that was all I remember doing. I mean, there's pictures of me very young with my cousins around who were older, giving me all their wrestling action figures and videotapes. So I'm like, uh, a year old sitting in one of the old LJN wrestling rings with all the figures around me, you know? So wrestling was really my escape, like my entire life. I would be, my aunt would take me to the mall on Saturdays and buy me a wrestling action figure. And my mom would take me to the flea market on Sundays. And there was a deal, three VHS tapes for 20 bucks. And I would buy three wrestling tapes every Sunday and watch them until the next Sunday I went and got new ones. So really my life had revolved around wrestling for a long, long time. Uh, my family was very supportive. I grew up with my mom, my grandma, my aunt, all in the same house. And my stepdad was present at a very young age. Um, and they were all really supportive, especially with wrestling. Cause I started training when I was like 14. So I had to take a go train to the training and everything. And my family always, always stuck by me when it came to wrestling and really everything, but especially with the wrestling, cause it was something I always, always wanted. During those years of schooling, were uh, what were you like uh, socially? Was did you have a, a lot of friends? Uh, you know, what what was that like um, in terms of the aspect of you know just kind of getting to know your classmates and um, uh, you know was it because uh, I I know a lot of times that um, you know when you like stuff like wrestling, um, you know it becomes one of those like, Oh, he is, he's the wrestling guy. And, you know, kids will kind of either pick on you or really get to know you. Uh, you know, I grew up in an era where wrestling was cool still. Um, and, and I think we're getting back to that era where, you know, AEW and, and WWE and all these other groups are starting and it's kind of getting more popular again. You know, I'll go out in public and just see somebody with a wrestling t-shirt, whether it be at the gym or at the mall so I think we're coming back around to that time where wrestling isn't, you know, looked down upon. It's not like a dirty little secret anymore. So growing up until about grade 10 or 11, wrestling was still cool with everybody. There was a couple friends in high school that liked wrestling. Other than that, it wasn't the popular thing, but I definitely had a lot of friends growing up. Um, you know, especially through elementary school, we were we were the wrestling kids. So we would always backyard wrestle or wrestle in the schoolyard. And then when I went to high school and got more into lacrosse and baseball and basketball teams, I had a lot of friends, of course, from those teams. But starting wrestling at such a young age, I, I started to alienate myself probably the last year of high school, just because in high school, everybody wants to hang out on weekends. Everybody wants to party on the weekends. And I was more focused on working out and wrestling. So my life really revolved around that probably the last year, probably two years of high school. Honestly, I was already traveling. My first match, I would say real match was when I was 16 and I traveled to Detroit for it. So I did have a lot of friends and I've reconnected with those people over the last couple of years. But really, man, I lost touch with a lot of people because, you know, normal people work Monday to Friday normal kids in high school want to party all weekend. And I couldn't do that because I had 
you know, a goal in mind that I was traveling all the time. So the last couple of years, I, I kind of alienated myself, but I was okay with it because I would work out and wrestle. And that was kind of my, my main focus in life. You know, at that time too, um, wrestling schools were not necessarily the easiest to find. How did you go about realizing that you could go to school and get trained in professional wrestling? And where did you end up and who trained you? So this is funny. Uh, I was maybe 11 and my mom was driving me home and I saw a poster on like uh, on a telephone pole. And I said, mom, you got to pull over. You got to pull over. And she goes, why? I go, you got to pull over. She pulled over and I ran to the corner. And sure enough, there's a wrestling poster. And it was a wrestling event that night. So we went home, I got tickets and I went and there was this match. It looked like a, like a Ray Mysterio against a chubby Eddie Guerrero is the best way I could put it. Like as an 11 year old, that's what I was seeing. They were, I'd never heard of them before, but they were doing all these crazy wrestling moves that I'd never really seen because in Canada, we were kind of the strictly WWF territory. So as far as live events and everything up until High school when WCW started coming around, it was really only WWF. So I had never really seen anything like this live. And I stayed after the event, and those two were walking out, and I asked them some questions, and they told me about some local schools. And one of the local schools they talked about was Ron Hutchinson's. Um, I emailed them like right away when I got home, but never heard back because I was 11 years old. But when I was 14, I went to. Uh, Man, I don't even know what it's called now, but it was the Sky Dome for a live WF event. And I got a flyer, and it was 14 and up, two-week pro wrestling camp. Hmm. So I got that flyer. I went home. I emailed, got a, a answer back, and applied for the two-week camp. And it was called EWF, um, which is not – I wouldn't really say that's where I trained because it was basically free time in the ring. And if you knew anything about wrestling – you kind of knew how to do simple things. You know, if somebody said, Hey, here's how you do a body slam. I'm like, of course I know a body slam I and mean, you have to correct some things, but probably the first year and a half of training was a lot of going to class early. Me and my buddy, uh, Connor, who used to wrestle as Transo Gomez in the Toronto scene would go in early and stay late and kind of do our own thing. And then when I was just turned 16, I found squared circle, which, uh, was owned by Rob Fuego. And I was trained a lot by Joe Legend and Tyson Dukes there. And how was it for you being a, a younger age? Was there any times in the either the schooling or um, your early travels, you know, before you were 18, um, that you were either put in a situation of, uh, you know, guys harassing you or bullying you or, um, you know, just odd situations that you would, you know, encounter maybe when you're 20 something and, and, you know, hanging around with the boys and training um, as compared to being a kid and maybe not knowing better that you're, you know, kind of being ribbed or teased or anything like that. It was everyone pretty, I mean, again, it's Canada. So I'm assuming that everyone was fairly polite um, in the aspect of handling, having kids at a training facility. You know, everything was fine. Um, I definitely saw other people get ribbed and, and teased. Luckily I was a very obese kid growing up until I was about 13. And then I found the gym 
So I was already much bigger than most of the people that were even, you know, 18 and stuff training. So I kind of wasn't put in those positions to be ribbed or anything. Um, and the crew I started traveling with, we were kind of the, the three people that watch indie wrestling. So when I went to training school, everybody wanted to be Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. And I was watching CM Punk versus Chris Hero from IWA Mid-South and all the, the first Ring of Honor shows and CZW Best of the Best. So I was very familiar with like the Indian Japanese wrestling prior to training. And a lot of the people at my era of training weren't really big into that kind of stuff. So the people who I gravitated towards were also into that stuff. And we were thick as thieves. We were always traveling together and doing all the shows together. And I really got along with pretty much everybody in uh, the Ontario scene. And there was an outliers of people that, that kind of weren't on the main shows, I would say. Um, but you only ran into them on, on certain events. So really I, I felt like I got along with everybody. Let me ask you, as you started to travel down to the States, um, what was that experience like? Um, did you have any kind of um, parental accompaniment or was that something that um, you were able to, you know, go down with a couple of the guys, you know, in a car? And how did that work out for you in terms of getting that opportunity and experience um, in the States? Was it something that was beneficial uh, as compared to just staying in Canada. Yeah. So I had to travel to the States because when I was 16, we had an athletic commission in Ontario. So you had to be 18 to actually perform. So my first training school when I was 14 did these memberships. So basically it was a ticket to the live show, but it was considered a membership. And that was their way around having people under 18 wrestle in front of a crowd. Um, but I don't really consider that my start, even though I wrestled in front of a crowd that paid to see me and the other people that part of the school, it was more of a friends and family crowd, right? Like all the wrestlers would invite their family and friends. They would pay the 10 bucks or whatever. And come. So my first show was actually in Detroit. And like I said, the people that I gravitated towards in training, I just asked, Hey, if you guys are going anywhere, I would love to come. I have my driver's license. I have a car like anywhere you go. And they were going to Detroit one weekend and I asked to come. They said, yes. And I brought my wrestling gear and traveled to Detroit and actually wrestled for a benefit show that truth martini of all people was hosting, who ended up being a big part of my career. And, you know, Jimmy Jacobs was there. Zach Gallen was there. And that was kind of my like start of meeting people that would be a factor in my career and life for many years to come, because those are three people that I'm still very close with and have been like family to me. You know, truth martini was actually the best man at my wedding. And I didn't invite too many people to my wedding because it was a small one, but truth and Jimmy were two of the people that I made sure was there. So it was a great experience. And that was kind of how I started because I couldn't wrestle in Canada at the time. And when you look at your early days on the independence, as you, you know, went from being a, a green kid to someone who's establishing themselves, uh, was there any particular uh, organization or region that you kind of felt was the, 
the stepping ground to kind of get to that next level to prepare you for your you know your bigger profile um uh, exposure in companies like Ring of Eight, Ring of Honor, and uh, New Japan, and, and Impact was was there one place that you really um, felt that you kind of got that experience you needed to kind of prepare you for that next level? Yeah, I, you know, I would say there's one in the states and one in Canada actually. So in Canada, there was a company called GCW, and they were in my hometown of Oshawa. They ran at Allegiant Hall, which actually my mom runs now which is funny and there i mean in 2005 2006 i was wrestling bobby Roode, rhino aj styles samoa joe um johnny divine like all the names that they brought in i was able to work with so that gave me a lot of experience to a next level uh, chris saban i wrestled there too like i wrestled a lot of guys tj wilson um the list goes on and on. So they were really helpful in me growing and kind of getting a name out there, and other people knowing who I was. And then IWA Mid-South would probably be the first big opportunities I got in the States. You know, they had me wrestle Trevor Murdoch and Two Cold Scorpio and Roderick Strong and all these other guys that were big in the indie scene before I was uh, really well known. So I would put a lot of, I put a lot of, respect on the names of gcw and iwa mid-south for for having faith in me and giving me opportunities to grow as a performer and when you um when you get to the point where you get offered a opportunity to do ring of honor what was it like for you to go from starting out with them and getting your feet wet and building a relationship to finally getting a chance to become ROH champion. What was that kind of rise like for you? Uh, you know, it's funny. So I did a tryout camp for them in 2010. And um, I mean, it was like me, Tommaso Ciampa, Tony Nice, um, Adam Page, quite a few other guys. And I remember Kevin Kelly taking me and Adam Page aside and being like, we see something in both of you but not right yet. And then a month later, I got a call that they wanted me to join House of Truth. So from my understanding, uh, Truth Martini was given the choices of me or P.D. Williams to join House of Truth. And him and Jimmy Jacobs talked and said that P.D. Williams is going to come in, get a good reaction, but he's already P.D. Williams, and I was going to work to become something special. So they both really helped me get my foot in the door in Ring of Honor. And uh, it was it was hard at first because everybody in wrestling is pr protective of their spot, uh, whether they want to admit it or not. I, I've seen it a lot, especially in the later years in Ring of Honor, when I was more advanced and, and near the top of the card and having performances that people were talking about. You would see people have tryout matches and, and you'd see some guys be like, why are they doing all this? And I, I just felt like, well, they're doing all that because they want to be in our position. So there's always that group of people that think like that and i truthfully never felt like that I, I never felt like somebody before me is doing too much how am i supposed to go out there and do my thing if you're confident enough in your ability and feel that you can garner that connection to a crowd you shouldn't worry about what's happening before and i think the first couple months was kind of getting my traction and then early after i started i got to wrestle el generico on a pay-per-view and eddie edwards in boston 
and both of those guys were tremendous and really uh, gave me an opportunity to shine and heard out my ideas and the ideas that they weren't comfortable with, they made so that they were comfortable with and still had my input into them. And uh, I'm very thankful to have those first two matches because I think those two matches really started to get people to know that I was there for good and that I was going to perform at a high level. And it was really surreal because, uh, as I said, I was kind of the indie kid. So I had a really good friend that would later become a manager in GCW, actually. And we would watch all the Ring of Honor shows when they were first coming out. And I had said, you know, one of my goals is to make it to Ring of Honor and be Ring of Honor world champion. So I had set that goal for myself and I was really determined to, to do the best I could. And I think that I worked very hard throughout my Ring of Honor career. I think I had many standout matches, um, some that I still, you know, will go back and watch just to feel some of that nostalgia. Uh, you know, matches against Davey Richards and uh, Kevin Steen and Eddie Edwards really stand out in my mind just because they're three tremendous wrestlers that I got to share the ring with. And my time there was, uh, I was grateful for it. As I said, I think it really helped me grow as a performer and I got to meet some amazing wrestlers, you know, um, Adam Cole, Kyle Riley, Roddy, Eddie Edwards, all these guys who have been, you know, tremendous in my growth and I'm so glad that they're all doing so good for themselves in the wrestling world um, I do really cherish my time in Ring of Honor and um, go ahead Steve uh, I was just going to ask um, so in, in your time in, in Ring of Honor um, what, uh, what were some of the things that really um, kind of resonated with you um, points of uh, you know improving your game things like that um, what, what sort of things did you pick up from your time there that maybe, uh, you've carried on with you? You know, that's hard to say because I always looked at wrestling different and I always thought about it 24 seven. So I think just being around a company with people that had that similar thought process, because not everybody in wrestling thinks like that. Um, really helped me formulate my ideas in a better way. You know, everybody there was to, was there to be the best wrestler they could be to make ring of honor globally known and to go out there and have the best match they can every night. And I think just being around others like that helps you elevate your game. You know, I got to do a lot of stuff with guys like, like I said, Eddie, Davey, Kevin Steen, uh, Adam Cole, all these guys are so talented and eat, sleep and breathe wrestling that just being around that atmosphere, it automatically makes you up that game. And to me, it's always good to have friendly competition. You know, um, you want everybody around you to be as good as they can be because it pushes you to be at that next level. And I think that's really important in wrestling. And truthfully, I believe that sometimes that is not the case you know i feel like we're in a time where too many people are worried about retweets and highlights of their matches being passed around on social media that they forget that this isn't just a retweet game or a oh i do this cool spot please put it in a highlight video it's wrestling is 24 7 eat sleep and breathe it and even with my time away from wrestling right now I mean, it's on silent, but I'm watching Bret Hart versus British Bulldog at In Your House 5. You know what I mean? Like, it's just something that is part of you and something that you gravitate towards and something that 
you can relate to every aspect of your life and that's what makes you better. And being around other people who feel that way, I think helped me, helped me realize that I wasn't doing something wrong. I wasn't doing something wrong in the fact that I was putting wrestling first, putting it first, helped me elevate myself and elevate the people around me. So as the other people around me feeling that way helped elevate me. By doing so, let me ask you, um, and being on the road and uh, everything that goes along with not being in the ring, did that, that time period in your life, uh, did you start, um, you know, finding a certain um, mentality on the road of, uh, you know, finding the, the different things, um, either, you know, places that you like to um, go to eat and work out guys you like to travel with um did you start dating during that time what was your life outside of the ring like in those you know first five six seven years of uh, your professional career uh you know i really focused on gym and food places um and still to this day it, it's funny there was a time in japan where some of the japanese talent would ask me what gym i was going to in certain towns because they weren't familiar but I was, which is weird being there. So I always focused on where's the gym, where's the food. If it's a Sunday and it's one of the weeks that I'm having a cheat meal, where are the, my favorite snack places in these cities? Um, stuff like that is really my main concern. Um, of course I was dating through this time, but like I said, being a wrestler is a lot different. So you're busy when normal people are having their relaxation time and that does not work well in your late teens, early twenties in a relationship, because when somebody is saying, Hey, it's Canada day, you want to go camping. And I'm like, well, Canada day isn't a holiday in the States. So I can go wrestle in Minnesota. That relationship's not going to last long. And uh, the last serious relationship I was in before I got married, I was dating a school teacher and she made a comment once that I get to work out all week and hang out with my friends on the weekend while she has to teach kids at school. So she took a Friday off to travel with me one weekend and I booked the worst weekend ever. It was like Friday night. I had to drive from Toronto to Chicago, from Chicago to Montreal on the Saturday. And then I had a Detroit booking on the Sunday. And by the time we were passing back through our house from Montreal back to Detroit, she tapped out and said, I can't do this anymore. I go, but. I thought it was just hanging out with my friends and having fun. So it was hard with somebody who didn't understand wrestling. And this will actually come into play throughout these interviews that if you don't understand what we do, why we do it, how we do it, the schedule can really beat somebody up that doesn't understand. Um, I've been very consistent other than seven months that I had of a rough go of working out twice a day eating every two and a half hours. And I don't break that for anything. So if I'm going out even for the day with somebody, I'll have a cooler with my meals with me. And if it's two 30 and I got to work out, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm going to go work out. So that can take a real strain on any relationship. So yes, I was dating, but it was hard to have a serious relationship with somebody when they couldn't understand why, why are you gone Thursday to Sunday? Why Monday do you sleep in till 4 p.m.? Well, it's because I didn't sleep all weekend. Uh, why are you watching wrestling when you were just wrestling all weekend? Why are you eating this? Why can't we go have pizza or that? And it can be a real strain on people who don't understand that lifestyle. So 
I mean, dating, yes, but nothing was going to ever work because I couldn't put a relationship first. And you um, did mention uh, your first wife. Uh, you got married um, to, it, it, was it Ms. Chief? Is that how she? Mischief. Uh, mischief. mischief. Just, yeah. just like the word mischief, just spelled different. Spelled differently. Yeah. Um, so how did you meet Rachel? Uh, and was that during, uh, you know, working on the road? Is that how you came across her? Yeah, actually, it was at AAW. And um, I had kind of a, a crush on her before ever talking to her. You know, we had done a bunch of shows there and I thought she was just gorgeous. And one day we were in the locker room. It was like a really hot day. And that, that locker room in Berwyn Eagles club was just the grossest locker room ever in the heat. So we would do anything to try to keep it as cool as possible. So we would like open anything we could that would get a breeze in. We'd keep the lights off everything. And she went to turn on the lights and I said, oh, why are you doing that? I was just about to ask you to dance. And she laughed. And then we started flirting there. And, and really, that's just how it all started. So I met her at AEW. And um, you guys had a, a kid together. You had a son. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you in terms of how your priorities um, changed? And, and was, it, um, was it something that was difficult now having a you know a newborn son uh and having to still travel and and try to uh continue to keep your bookings what what was that like being introduced to fatherhood um being a pro wrestler you know that, that that's really tough um and looking back now i realize that my thought process of being so busy and working so much because he was born in 2015 September. So like literally right after I debuted for New Japan. And then from then until 2019, I would be with New Japan all the time, plus doing all the indie bookings, plus running my wrestling school. And I thought that I was putting my family first as a priority by doing all that to make sure that they never had to worry about anything. And now looking back, I realized that there's nothing that can make up for time. So as much as I thought I was making him and mischief a priority. Now looking back on everything, I feel that I really didn't make them a priority that I was still focusing on wrestling. Even though at the time, like I said, hindsight's 2020, I thought that focusing on wrestling and making as much money as possible was the most important thing for them. But, you know, unfortunately you, you learn and live or you live and learn and uh, you make mistakes and hopefully you can, correct them in the future. But I, I really feel that I wish I could have put more focus on being home than being on the road on many occasions, because I was, I had to ask to be home for a couple extra days before tour started for his first birthday in 2016. I missed his second, third, second and third birthday. And then I missed his first steps. I missed his first words. Um, so it was really tough, you know, reflecting on some of the things that I, I missed, uh, have been very tough because, you know, there's nothing like being a father and, uh, seeing him grow up and seeing the amazing effort and love and care that mischief has shown him and the growth he's had because she's been so present is amazing. So even though I was busy and luckily, 
you know, he's got everything he could ever ask for as a kid. Like, uh, I mean, I waited on Thanksgiving day outside GameStop for seven hours, just get him a PS five for Christmas. So luckily, you know, he has everything he needs and wants, I hope, but I do wish that I could have gave more time to him when I was on the road so much. And what um, ultimately led to um, you guys getting a divorce? Um, was there, you know, anything behind that in terms of um, just, you know, relationship stress or uh, were there other things that fed into um, you guys, um, you know, separating? Well, uh, stuff with Mo, um, her accusations, of course, put a strain on us. Um, but other than that, I think it was just, as I said, I didn't give enough time. And when you're in the heat of things, you think you're working so hard to provide and you feel that your partner isn't communicating as well or showing the love that you want as well as they should. But like I said, hindsight's 2020 and now reflecting on everything, I realize if I wasn't communicating properly, why did she feel like she could communicate? Or if I wasn't showing the love and care that she needed, why would she show it back to me? And I think that the strain was that I, I just was so busy. You know, as I said, I would be in Japan for four weeks. I would come home on a Monday. I would teach my wrestling class Tuesday and Wednesdays evenings, you know, from seven till 10. But then during the day, I'm working out twice. And then Thursday, I'm back on the road. And then I'm back Sunday. And then maybe I'll go to Mexico for a week and then I'll come back. So I just feel that I wasn't there in a loving, supporting role. And that definitely wore on us. And uh, because I felt like I wasn't getting the attention and love, like I've said, that I needed and the communication I needed, even though it was a lack of me not showing that, um, I was definitely guilty of like emotionally cheating. So I would flirt a lot and, and, and stuff like that, not physically, but I would definitely be out of line with some conversations I had with people mutually now. But regardless, uh, that now that I look back at it was equally as wrong and I should have expressed myself in better ways and communicated better on my own behalf rather. Um, luckily, you know, we've had talks and, and we've discussed everything and we're both there for our son and uh, have a pretty strong relationship as parents. So that's all that matters because no matter what, um, I think that mischief is a beautiful and wonderful person. And uh, I, I'm very lucky and fortunate enough to have had a child with her because she's an amazing mother too. And just so um, we can make sure that we're correct on this, with her, there has never been any accusations or, or anything that's come out from her, right? No. Uh, you know, of course, people will say, well, you can just ask his ex-wife. Like, no, because there was nothing wrong. Did we ever have arguments? Absolutely. But any couple that's going to be together for years has arguments. That doesn't mean yelling. That doesn't mean anything like that. I've never, I mean, she's still in the house that I bought when we were together. There's no damage to anything. There's nothing like that. We just fell apart from what I just said. Sure. But that's an easy tale for somebody to tell when she's not going to say anything because there was nothing happened. So there's never been anything said by her. Other people have tried to bring her into issues that they've said, of course. But no, there's never been any accusations. And as I said, we still see each other very often. 
you know, uh, yesterday morning we hung out for five hours playing switch with jacks. So, you know what I mean? Like there's just, we literally played, um, super smash brothers for five hours because we had to play every character and the first round, my son had to win all of them. Then the second round, she had to win all of them. And then the third round, I had to win all of them. So that's just what we did uh, all day. And as I said, we still have a, a strong relationship as parents. And um, we mentioned Japan. Um, what would you say was your highlight of uh, your time with New Japan Pro Wrestling? I would probably have to say... the ladder match with Kenny. It was the first ever ladder match in New Japan history. It was for the Incontinental Championship. And me and Kenny always had really strong chemistry and uh, always got along great. So I, I would have to say that that stands out. And during that time, um, you were in a tag team with Jeff Cobb. Yeah. And, um, you know, there there is a... Uh, I, I guess some heat that came out because of the uh, private messages apparently that were leaked. Oh, people uh, believe that there was heat. We, we had discussed it and whether he has, still has an issue or not, you know, I, I kind of covered it when I put something up on YouTube about it. Um, the whole story, which of course nobody ever heard about. This all starts with Mo. She would ask me to bring certain people into Glory Pro shows because she was talking to them online and was going to sleep with them, which later when she accused me and I sued her would come out all these wrestlers, girlfriends tweeting at her to leave their boyfriends alone because she was harassing them. Now she would bring up Jeff Cobb and multiple other people many times. And I had said stuff about a friend of mine to her, which she sent to him. Now, why I did that, was prior to her ever making an accusation online, I tried to get an order of protection against her because she would constantly try to get me to retweet her GoFundMes and um, try to harass people that she didn't like in the wrestling world. And then when I wouldn't threaten me that she was going to accuse me of something, which I, at the time, didn't think anything of because... I had a lot of goodwill in the wrestling community. You know, people like my stuff in new Japan, people were falling along glory pro. And I was like, well, people aren't going to believe this girl. Like, look, I don't give a shit, but I still tried to get the order of protection because she was threatening me pretty heavy, which the messages have been out there. And, um, it was denied. Basically the judge told me that the inherent danger that a man that a woman provides towards a man is not the same that as a danger that a man provides towards a woman. So it's very difficult to get an order of protection against a woman if you're a man. And my lawyer that I had at the time gave me a bunch of things that would help get an order of protection that wouldn't be denied. And there were such things as if the girl is threatening to harm you, if she's threatening to send somebody after you to harm you, if she's invading your privacy, sending your info or messages to people all these things can add up. So she sent the first messages to my friend, which he, his name never came up. So I don't really feel comfortable saying his name. And uh, he messaged me and asked about it. I explained to him, showed him the messages that Mo was sending me. And he said, damn dude, that's fucked up. I hope you get, you know, this taken care of. Now I did it with Jeff too, but I should have warned Jeff beforehand, which when I talked to him after she posted stuff online, 
he that's exactly what he said. He said, dude, if you're doing that, you should have just fucking told me. And I agree with him and 100 percent. But I mean, we were a team the year after we did multiple tours after uh, he was in Vegas because he lives there. And his girlfriend at the time was doing some stuff for impact. And we walked around the casino, had a bite to eat, chop the shit. And if he has an issue, then he has an issue. But I actually genuinely like Jeff, and I genuinely think he's very talented, and I'm glad that he's doing good in New Japan. So, no, on my part, there wasn't any heat. And should I have said those things to Mo? No. Should I have warned him what was going on? Yes. But I personally don't have any issues with Jeff. I think he's a solid dude and a good wrestler. Awesome. You're here to and, Definitely. Um, now, just uh, just one thing really quickly uh, of note uh, during your time uh, with New Japan, um, you were in the G1, uh, not once, but on two different occasions. Um, a lot of people in the business, that is uh, a type of a bucket list kind of a thing. Um, what was, what was, your, was that uh, Oh, I apologize. I apologize. Um, what? <laughs> What was uh, what were your experiences like uh, competing in the G1 uh, with that concentration of matches and, uh, you know, that high profile uh, type of a tournament? I feel that I do best in those high pressure situations. Um, I feel that if you watch me wrestle anywhere and I mean, that's IWA Mid-South when they were drawn very low people, if it's a little indie show. I'm going to go out there and have the best performance I can because to me, if I go out and wrestle half-assed, even if there's five people in the crowd and those five people don't want to come back because the person they saw in New Japan or Ring of Honor phoned it in, I'm not doing my job right. My job is to perform for anybody that buys a ticket. So I pride myself because I, I get I get paid per match if it's an indie if it's a contract like impact or new japan obviously it's a, it's a high price contract but i get paid to wrestle no matter how many people are there so i try to perform at my best now you put myself in a situation like the g1 in front of sold out crowds in japan against some of the best wrestlers in the world i think i step up to that occasion and i think that if you watch 2015 G1, where when I got announced, reporters out there were saying, why isn't Roderick Strong there? Why did Michael Elgin go? And blah, blah, blah. And then by the end, I all of a sudden had a nickname of Big Mike and yep. people were making that shirt that said Elgin, but instead of an I, it was G and one because I did so good in the first G1. Yeah. So I love those high pressure situations. I thrive on those i want those every time and i think that's helped me become the wrestler i am because if i'm wrestling whoever from some boonie in tennessee at, at a little show in front of 50 people in a church that's converted into a wrestling arena i put my the pressure on myself to go out there and have a match that nobody out there has ever seen before that this wrestler is going to have the best match they've ever had because I want that audience to come back, whether I'm there or not. I just want a strong wrestling audience wherever. So when it's high pressure, I think I perform at my best and I always try to put a high pressure on me no matter where I am. But of course, in somewhere like the G1, 
that pressure is tenfold. I really feel that that brings out the best in me. Definitely. And with, uh, you know, New Japan, you had ROH, you finally get to Impact Wrestling. How, when you got there and, and during your time there, how was the uh, the locker room and the situation for you working with Impact? So I was supposed to debut for Impact in 2018, January. I was supposed to do a set of tapings. But in December 2017 was when Mo did her thing. So I was taking off those tapings, but throughout that time, Don Callis and Scott Demore really wanted me to be a part of impact, especially when the, when I was taking it to court and it was coming out that what she was saying was a lies. Uh, they really wanted me to, then it was time for my raise in new Japan because my contract was supposed to be up in 2020. And as I said, I felt like I wasn't giving enough time to my family and I really wanted to focus on that. So I asked for a substantial raise so I didn't have to do all the indie bookings and they wouldn't give me as much as I wanted. So I asked for my release. And once I asked for my release to be closer to my family, I reached back out to Impact and said, look, I just asked for my release. Do you still want me? They said, of course we do. And they hired me for the same money that New Japan was offering me. And even though it was less, it meant less travel. You know, I would go to Japan for other companies, but it was for a weekend here and there rather than going for four weeks. And then coming home for two days and having to go back for a weekend and then coming back for three days and then going back for three weeks. So it was just a lot lighter schedule and allowed me to be more present, even though, you know, my marriage was already down the drains and we were separated. It at least allowed me to be there more for my son. So that was really the big, the big step I wanted to make was to make the money I make, be home more. And uh, honestly, I, feel that the roster was pretty good. I think that there were some people that were comfortable, but as long as you push them, they performed at their highest level. And then you had guys like Jake something and Josh Alexander and Ethan page and Hakeem Zane that had all the ability in the world and people I had seen a bunch, you know, I grew up around Ethan page and Josh. I was in it before anybody knew them. And I was pushing them to get booked everywhere. And I was booking Jake something and Akeem Zane and glory pro before they started blowing up on the Indies and stuff. And that was because I hate to, to sound like, Oh, I made these guys stars. I'm not saying that. I just saying that due to me wrestling so much and traveling so much, I got to see a lot of people, before anybody else did. And I really felt that they were super talented and as time would tell now in 2021, all four guys are, are amazing. And, um, I had a good time there and my series with Eddie Edwards were some of my favorite matches. Um, matches with rich Swan were phenomenal. Um, so I had a good time there, you know, and um, with that, we're going to wrap up the end of uh, episode one here. Uh, we just learned about Michael's, you know, childhood, his uh, getting into wrestling, uh, his personal life during that time period. And, you know, some highlights of his career um, during, uh, you know, his, his runs with Ring of Honor, Impact and New Japan and, um we're asking everyone to tune in for episode two. Uh, this is where Michael will start sharing more of the story, um, how he got tied into the speaking out movement. 
and uh, he'll address some of the accusations made against him. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Mo, who uh, we'll, we'll kind of start off episode two with. So um, we encourage everyone to please uh, listen and, um, again, keep an open mind and uh, hear his side of the story. Hey, I- I'm glad you said that. That's been the whole thing. Now, I released videos, which I know I sent to you, with nothing but other people's words. The people that accuse me, their words. And clearly people are don't want to pay attention to it. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying that I haven't made mistakes in my life. But I am saying that what many of these people are saying is absolutely false. And if you look at anything that I put up online, it's not just me making a statement. It's proof of what I'm saying. And that's all I'm asking is look at both sides. You know, it's funny. And I want to get this in on this episode, hoping people will watch this and maybe watch the others. Uh, this is actually perfect timing because what just happened to uh, Tay Conte? She deactivated her Twitter because social media was going after her. And I have personally been retweeting everything I see of somebody shitting on social media for forcing her off of Twitter. But people are speaking up because it's a female. If it was a male the other way around, people don't speak up. All I'm asking for is people look at both sides of the story and then make a judgment call. That's what all this problem is, is that nobody will actually look into what's being said, into the other side of what's being said, into the people saying these things, which brings me to a big point is when that Louis guy accused Cody Rhodes, everybody just said, Louis crazy. Don't listen to him. But that was because he was a guy. If it was a girl, nobody would have called her crazy. Nobody wouldn't have looked at her history. They would have just believed. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't believe people who are making accusations, but that should be the start of an investigation because unfortunately, Google can be your friend here. There is false accusations in this world in anything. And it can ruin people's lives. And up until the last couple of weeks when I started fighting back, I wanted to end my life and put these stories out, hoping that it would be like, oh shit, maybe we should watch these videos that Mike Elgin put up because now he's dead. And hopefully that would rectify the situation. And that's scary because I do have a young son, but at the time I thought that was the only way that when he was older, he could look me up and be like, damn, people did him wrong. At least there's a truth out there. Because unfortunately, a video where I thought I was going to kill myself after I put it up, and luckily Maria James stepped in and calmed me down, got like 8,000 views. But views talking about the other side of these stories have four and 500 views. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you can judge me, but judge me after you see both sides is all I ask. And I think that's well stated, and that's what we ask everyone to please do, keep that open mind. And until episode two, which will be coming out shortly, we want everyone to take care, and we'll talk to you guys then. Vegas Bad Boys of Podcasting.